Good morning. It's really good to be with you all this morning. Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. If we have not met yet, if you're new, you're visiting, my name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at Trinity uh, in the east side, and we should meet afterwards. Hopefully we can find each other. It would be great to, to get to know your name and, and just say, hey, welcome. Um, just to reiterate or to, to echo what Beth already said, this conversation on sexuality that's coming up in a couple of weeks, a lot of, a lot of thought has gone into this. This has been sort of in the background uh, cooking um, among the leadership for a really long time and feels like it's a really important thing for the church to be able to, in this cultural moment that we're living in, to provide clarity, to provide um, thoughtfulness, kindness, generosity. And so we want to be able to have a conversation about things that are deeply important and deeply personal and do it in a way, hopefully, that um, will be will come with the spirit of kindness and compassion that the Spirit comes to us with. So I say all that to say, like, if you can come, please be there. There's a lot of things for us to try to figure out how to navigate today as people. And uh, we're, we're going to do our best, Ashley, and a number of other folks are going to be helping us understand and, and talk through those things. And it's probably also going to lead to further follow-up conversations afterwards. But as far as, like, an initial starter conversation... I would just really encourage you to come. It's worth your 45 minutes in the car to get to the west side on a weeknight to go and be a part of this. I know that's what you're thinking. Is it really? I think it really is. So it's worth your 45 minutes. Um, We're going to be in 2 Timothy. It's the last week we're looking at a passage from 2 Timothy. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, we're looking at chapter 4, and I'm just going to read a few verses, verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy 4, as for me, that is Paul, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray with one another. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, as we just sang, you are the way maker. And I would just imagine that there are a number of us in this room that are struggling to find our way right now through difficult things, through painful things, through confusing things, unexpected things. And so, Lord, as we come today as your people, we sort of just circle ourselves around this idea that you are the God who makes a way in the desert. You are the God who carves out a path through the sea. You are a God who is over and above all life circumstances and rulers and powers, and so we trust you, and we just trust you to lead us and, and to even lead us today in this text to give us something that is meant to help us hold on to what is true, what is essential, what is needed. So, Holy Spirit, would you please come? What benefit would any of this be to us if you do not come? Come and make yourself known and speak and lead us. Be among us, Spirit. We ask for your your help. 
We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've been looking at 2 Timothy for a while. This is the last time we're going to look at it. We've been saying, I'll say, this, I'll say it again, we've said every week now, in this letter, Timothy is a pastor. He's a young man. He's in a church hundreds of miles from Rome, and in Rome is his spiritual father, his mentor, his discipler, Paul, Paul the great apostle, Paul the guy who brought Christianity to Europe and Asia, uh, that Paul. And he is uh, hearing somehow that his son, his spiritual son, Timothy, is, is discouraged, is struggling, uh, is worried, is anxious. And these are all really normal emotions that we can all understand and relate to. And so he picks up a pen and some parchment for one last time, and he writes a letter hundreds of miles away to his friend, to his son, to encourage him, to help him find a way through this, through the hardship, through the confusion. In a sense, what Paul does is he lifts the curtain and he lets Timothy into his inner life, lets him into the things that he's held on to. And every week we've talked about these sort of practices that, that Paul talks about. We've talked about these rhythms. We've called it the habits of the church. And, and those are all good ways of, of thinking about it. They're, they're just, um, they're the idea that there's stuff that we can be doing in the middle of a trying season. We don't have to just wait for the time to pass. There's a way to continue to push forward through the hardship and, and to find our way to the other side. In today's text, we essentially get Paul's last words. I mean, if you have the Bible in front of you, you see he keeps talking, but pretty much everything after that is pretty personal. He's like, hey, can you bring me my coat? It's cold. Can you bring me my parchments? I'd like to read something. Uh, but, but everything leading up to verse 8, that's, that's kind of like, that's the whole of his thoughts. And so he sums up, These are, this is my last theological idea. This is my last big thought to you. He wants to let Timothy, and I think by implication, let you and me know what it is that he keeps before him that helps him to endure. Now, I think it's important for us to just say that when we talk about endurance, we're not just talking about how do you, um, how do you adopt the right mindset or the right headspace so that you are thinking rightly all the time. Thinking rightly is really important. It's foundational. You might even say it's prime. Like if you're not thinking rightly about a thing, if you don't have a... a um, an accurate understanding of your reality, then that's probably going to affect all other parts of your life. But we're not simply brains on a stick. We're not just trying to figure out how to get our brains in order. It's actually about how does my whole life fall into conformity with what I, who I want to be and what I sense is deeply needed in the world. Namely, that I would be a person who embodies love. How would I become the sort of person that I deeply long to be and that I feel the world deeply Needs. And that's really what, when we talk about endurance, we talk about the strength and the courage to pick up day after day to choose once again, one more time, one more time, one more time, to choose the way of love, to choose the way of, um, of, of God, the way of Jesus. Now, Eugene Peterson, who's sort of, uh, he's, he's uh, deceased now, but he's like a pastor to all the pastors here at Trinity, uh, is an incredible person uh, and also the translator of the, the message. Anyway, Peterson writes in a book that came out years ago called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says, every day I put love on the line. There is nothing that I am less good at than love. Amen. I am far better in competition than in love. I am far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions to get ahead and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love another. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills and getting my own way. And yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily. We talked last week about being beginners and being comfortable with that. 
to attempt what I can do clumsily, to open myself up to the frustrations and the failures of loving, of daring to believe that f- this is great. Failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. So when we talk about endurance, which we've been talking about now for a month, we, we are, we're not simply talking about how do you adopt the right kinds of thoughts, but how do you actually fund the kind of life that you want to lead, that I want to lead, that I imagine all of us do? Uh, what sort of mindset do we need, but then how do we put that into practice? How do we become those sort of people? This is the place Paul is writing from. This is the sort of life he has. This is a man who's literally in chains, covered in scars, has been betrayed by close friends countless times, has experienced more suffering and hardship probably than most of us or even all of us in this room, has experienced the sort of human suffering and emotional suffering, spiritual suffering uh, that has actually made him into the man he is today. And yet he writes from a place of strength and from a place of courage and the ability to keep going. And I don't know about you, I'd like to find that. I'd like to get in on that. I'm tired of getting run over by stuff. I'm tired of like one bad email or one bad thing just turning my day upside down. I actually would like to have that sort of, um, I don't know, unflappableness, if that's a word. Paul in these final verses, gives Timothy a little snapshot into his brain and what we see on the inside of his brain. It's not surprising if you know all of Paul's literature, but it's actually really cool. He gives Paul this imaginative world in which he lives, and he says, this is how I understand life. He gives four images, four metaphors in these three little verses. Paul's last words are four metaphors by which he lived his life. He talks about drink offerings. He talks about running in races. He talks about righteous judgments, like standing before a court. And he talks about the coming of, of, of a Caesar. Four things. He gives these four things as like, this is the framework by which I live my life, which is to say this. Paul had a deeply visual and uh, imaginative way in which he engaged his Christianity. And we probably could afford to do that too. Mostly because our life, we're constantly being inundated with relics from the narratives that we're living in. So, I mean, all of, like, we live in a very visual world, and you're constantly being given images and visuals that are reminding you of what kind of story you live in. And Paul says, well, what I do is I take the visuals of this world, and then I reconfigure them to help me make sense of my life with Jesus. Which is, I think, actually maybe a good word for us. That the last habit of the church, if you will, as we've talked about different habits, the last habit of the church that we see in the Apostle Paul is the use of our imagination and the use of our, of our mind to help to set us in the story that we're living in. Uh, Paul, at other places in his literature, uses lots of illustrations. He says the church, for example, is like a human body with eyes and ears and nose, mouth, feet, and so on. And every part's really important. You know, right now, touch the unimportant part of your body. Everyone's hands are still on their lap. Like, there is no unimportant part of your body. No, no one's like, do you want this or would you rather have lunch? It's like, I mean, everybody needs every part of their body. I mean, he also says that the human being, a Christian, is actually a living temple. It's like a structure, a, a body in which God dwells and is a thin place where heaven and earth touch one another. That's how he describes Christians. He says salvation is not this idea of like some, like, my, you know, my sins are forgiven, which is sort of you know, like abstract. He says, no, it's like adoption into a family. What salvation is, is an orphan being brought into a family and having a home. In other words, he's always using visual things and imaginative things to lock him down into the story that he's wanting to live in so that he can have the strength and the courage to continue to push forward, which is not 
unique to him. Jesus, of course, did the exact same thing. When Jesus wanted you to understand what he was calling uh, you and me too, he used very tangible physical examples from his life. I mean, things that may not mean a whole lot to us today, like pearl merchants and farmers and seed and soil, but certainly bread and wine, these are all relics or images or metaphors that Jesus used in order to help us understand our life. All of this comes to us for this one reason. Because what we choose to set our mind on, what we choose to put before us, actually does end up funding our entire life. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book um, Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a a Holocaust survivor, um, a psychologist who ended up in Auschwitz, and documented basically what happened to him and his people while they were there. Not uh, sort of in the mechanical way, but like what happened to their brain? What happened to their heart? And he watched basically two phenomena. One is the people who chose despair and who gave up. Like they just died quicker. They died, I mean, they essentially, they, they just passed away. They perished. But those who had a thing deep inside, a resolve, a thing to live for, a larger thing that was holding them together, they endured. They had the strength to keep going in unimaginable circumstances. He says in his book, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Or as he says elsewhere in the work, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And as we sing about Jesus as the way maker, we sing about God as the one who finds, who carves a path through uh, unnavigatable circumstances. We just remember that the way that Paul Imagine this, the way that Viktor Frankl invites us is it begins with our minds. It begins with the stories that we're telling ourselves. It begins with the images we're laying before us. And so what I'm going to do in these final sort of 10 minutes we got is I'm just going to talk about these four images Paul gives us and, and what sort of questions they make me ask about my life. We talked last week about meditation and how we sort of sit with the text and we let it raise questions. And that's what I did this week. And these are the questions that came out of it for me. So verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a libation. So the first image he gives us, gives us is of a drink offering, which is the economy of his life. Now, a drink offering is probably something that you and I have never seen, um, mostly because probably none of us have ever seen an animal sacrifice. They're hard to find in Decatur. There's not very many places you can still go see a good animal sacrifice. And so a good one. You don't want to go to those cheap versions, the real thing. Anyway, a drink sacrifice is something where they would actually, during the act of a sacrifice, would take a glass of wine usually, a very expensive, very top shelf, the best stuff, and pour it over the sacrifice. And it was akin to raising a glass to the God being sacrificed to. It was akin to saying, here, this is for you. This is your, this is your cup of wine. Now, here's the thing about drink offerings that I think is so interesting and so fascinating. Animal sacrifices, the temple sacrifices, and not just in, in Jewish and Judaism, but actually in all pagan religions, sacrifices tend to be community, community events in which people gather around, they have a reminder that they're, they, they appease their God in some way, and then they eat a really good meal. In other words, sacrifices are deeply pragmatic. You find the best meat, you sacrifice it, you appease the gods, and everyone eats the best meal they've eaten in weeks. That's what animal sacrifices were. They don't burn the whole thing up and destroy it. They cook it, and then they eat it. So you could always go to a sacrifice, and you, w- you wouldn't say on the outside and go, how wasteful. You'd say, like, that's going to be a really great meal. That's what you'd say as you looked at all, the, all the, you know, this food cooking. But drink offerings... 
You're not getting that wine back. No one's drinking that wine. You are just taking the best stuff you have and just gluck, 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 just pouring it out. How wasteful, right? What a waste. How reckless of an act. Unless there actually is a God who receives that as a sacrifice. And what Paul, when he says, my life is like a libation being poured out, he is essentially saying, if you looked at my life from the outside, you would think, what a waste. Unless there is a God he is serving who is receiving his life as a sacrifice. And I was thinking about my own life. What are the things in my life that make no sense, that would appear utterly reckless, that would feel foolish to a person on the outside? If there isn't a greater thing that I'm in, if there isn't a greater person who's watching my life, there's something in Paul's words here that I think just calls us to remember that there's a, um, a non-sensibility to following Jesus at times. Like you and I are called to do a thing that won't feel sensible. Like stay in a relationship that takes a ton of work and would be way easier to punch out of, but you have this sense that actually faithfulness is actually what you're called to. Or to leave a job when you actually could go somewhere else and get more money or have better hours or whatever, but there is a deep sense of calling that you have. I'm not talking about sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. I'm talking about the sense of like belonging and calling in a space. What are the things that God is calling you and me to or that we find ourselves in today that actually don't make a whole lot of sense unless there is someone who is receiving the drink offering. Because if there's someone receiving the drink offering, then suddenly the sacrifice has a greater purpose to it, right? It actually is raising a glass to the one, and it's saying, hey, this is for you. And somehow, in a way that we can't fully understand, it gladdens the heart of God and makes him very happy. Paul says, my life is like this, from the outside, reckless, wasteful, he says in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ isn't raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is the point of my life if Christ is not raised? In other words, there should be in our lives something that doesn't make sense, something that is apparently foolish. The second image he gives is of a race, sort of the Olympic Games of his day. He says, and in that race, I have finished it. I have fought the good fight, meaning not that I have fought well, although, yeah, sure, but more like I have fought in the fight worth fighting for. I've given myself to the greater cause, that the goal of my life has been to, to put it to work in something that is larger than myself. What is the opposite of that? What is the opposite of fighting the good fight? Well, I think the opposite of fighting the good fight is um, fighting the trivial fights, which I find effortless. I find it virtually effortless to give myself the trivial things all week long. I mean, it's just like it's before me. It's like a buffet, and I'm at the Golden Corral of trivial things, all, which is a terrible restaurant. And I, and I can just have all the triviality in my life that I possibly could ever want. It's just available to me to give my time, to give my energy to it. Meanwhile, there's a deeper, there's a more significant and more substantial, and we could use the biblical word eternal, meaning that there's an ongoing, deep, and forever, everlasting sort of thing to give my life to. And I just find it way easier to give it to simple, easy solutions, surfacey fixes to more complex problems. And so I find myself like, you know, with the crack in the wall that's forming that is almost certainly caused by foundation issues. But as long as you have spackle and paint, you don't have to deal with it for another couple months, right? And you just sort of keep spackling and painting over issues rather than dealing with the foundational issues that are causing them. 
Like, for example, I find it easier to give myself uh, or, you know, to, to energize myself around the idea of like a new exercise regimen so that I'll feel better about myself. That's way easier for me to get excited about than the idea of me doing the deep internal work to finally be comfortable in my own skin. It's just easier to like, well, I'll do a thing. I find it easier to, to, um, to think about making a little bit more money on the side as opposed to learning to be content with what I have and experiencing the limitations that I have as a gift. It's way easier to think about, well, but maybe there's a side hustle. In other words, I can find a cheap, surfacey solution to things, and all they are really is putting spackle and paint over a crack when I'm not addressing the deeper things. And Paul says, what I have chosen to do again and again is I've given my life to a thing that makes no sense, but I really believe it has been the, it's been the deep, good thing. It's been the good fight. It's the fight that I think, I think we all want to say we fought. I don't think any of us want to be lying on our beds, you know, surrounded by family. And, and we can all say, boy, what a trivial life. What, what a just an, an endless parade of triviality. <laughs> Nobody wants that story. None of us are trying to live that story, and yet we find ourselves swept up in it. And do you know why? It's because everything is bent on you living in that sort of like trivial, small, self-centered where my happiness and my emotions are the most important and central thing rather than a greater cause. And Paul says, I gave my life to a greater cause. I gave my life to something better and bigger than myself, something larger. What in, what in my life, in what ways, there's always going to be, a, a, there's always going to be triviality. You know, that, 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 there's always going to be those things in your life. But what is the greater thing I'm fighting for? What is the greater thing I'm a part of? The third image that Paul gives us is of a righteous judge. He says, I'm going to get a crown. That is, he, he's, again, he's still quoting from the, the sort of the Olympic Games, the idea of, of getting like a fig leaf crown. But it's a crown of righteousness, and he says that it will come from a righteous judge. In Paul's mind was always vivid this imagination around the courtroom. Not sure why. Maybe it had something to do with his education. He really loved court. Uh, he loved the law. He loved to think about it. He uses it regularly as a way of describing what the gospel is and as a way of describing what it means to, to be a person following Jesus. Anyway, so he just had in his mind's eye just constantly this, this scene of a courtroom in which he was going to stand before a judge. And all these charges were going to come at him. All these charges were going to come at him. And yet he was going to be able to look at the judge, and the judge would say, you're innocent, you're free, you're, um, you're welcome, you're wanted. In other words, what Paul had in his mind was that at the end of his life, he would stand in some way before a judge, and all of it would be added up. And if you think about the whole of your life, and you think about all the things, or even just this week, you know, I think it's really easy for us to sort of focus on the bad things, but there's probably a lot of good things we all chose to do this week. There's also probably a lot of not great things we chose to do this week. And just the whole amount of it, just sort of standing up there right in front of us, you know? And the Bible says that you and I have someone who in that role will, will, will play an accuser. In fact, the word Satan literally means the accuser. Every time you see Satan or Satan, just think the accuser. And while the accuser roars about all the things and all the sins that you and I have done, as the, as the, as the hymn says, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and countless more. Jehovah knoweth none. And Paul had in his mind this courtroom in which he would stand and his whole life would be laid before him and there was plenty in there to maybe convict him and yet he finds great comfort in that the last word spoken to him will be welcome, peace, forgiveness. Which just made me think about what is in my imagination, what is the great final ultimate word cast over my life? 
Because I live actually a lot of the times like the final word spoken over my life is insufficient or um, disappointing. I live as though like the final word spoken over my life is actually a word that's meant to be like, go on, hustle. You don't have enough. You haven't done enough. You're not enough. And that that sort of energy is actually motivating. Whereas Paul could say, I give myself to a greater cause. I do it without having to, I, I raise the stakes in my whole life. But I don't live this super scrupulous life. In fact, in another place, I think it's in one of the Corinthian letters as well, he says, he says a lot of people are judging me. He's like, I don't really care because I don't even judge myself. You're like, you don't judge yourself? He's like, no, God is my judge. In other words, Paul could raise the whole stakes of his life. And just imagine that you have this idea that like every decision matters. Everything matters. Like who you buy your clothes from and who you buy your coffee from, like how you interact with the people around you and how you drive your car and how you treat the land that you own and everything matters what relationships you build with your neighbors, everything, everything. He raises the stake and he says like, but I don't like sit in constant judgment over myself. God is my judge. Because why? Because I will stand before the righteous judge and he will declare me innocent and give me a crown. In other words, there's just a final word of peace spoken over my life. So I don't live in fear. I live in victory. Pre like present awareness of future victory. And because of that, I have courage to keep going. And I just think it's a question worth asking ourselves. What is the word over my life? Like what is, you can tell a lot about what you think about God by how you think about yourself. You can think, you can tell a lot about how you think about God by how you think about other people when they don't live up to your expectations. I tell a lot about how I really think God feels about me by the way that I really view myself. And Paul just had this sense of like, no, there's going to be, in my mind, there's a day and I will stand and I'm, I'm free. I'm okay. And so he gives us the final picture, which is of his appearing. He paints this picture of the Caesar coming to town. Now, when you were um, a, a Roman colony in those days, the Caesar would come and visit you. And so uh, the appearing or the epiphany or the, the, uh, the, the parousia, the advent, the coming of a Caesar was a really great day for certain places. It was a great day for places that were like Team Caesar. It was not a great day for places that were like not Team Caesar, whatever that team would be. Team Zealot. So if you were Team Caesar, the coming of the Caesar was a great day. He says, and when the righteous judge comes, he will give me the crown of righteousness, and not only to me, but to all who have, quote, longed for his appearing. All who have longed for the coming of the Caesar. So he says, I place myself in this imaginative world in which I'm fighting this fight, and it's worth fighting. I'm pouring my life out in ways that appear to be reckless. I have in mind what the end is, and I already know what it is. And because I know the end, I'm able to fight without fear or without constantly scrutinizing myself. And I have in my mind also this beautiful reality that one day the Caesar is coming and he will restore all things. I have, um, I have like noticed in myself in the last few years, um, probably actually since I started getting like more liturgical, um, this, this growing groan inside of me, like, come Lord Jesus. That's what the season of Advent's all about. And we're a month away from Advent. Can you believe that? We're a month away from Advent. And then for a month, we're going to practice groaning with one another, which I, it sounds kind of strange, but I mean, I, I, it's a, it is a, it is meant to grow the muscle in you that groans. You know, that, that looks at the world around us and feels the deep pain and the imperfection of it and the 
brokenness of it and groans deeply, come Lord Jesus. It's the sort of feeling that I think Jesus had when he stood outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It says in uh, John 11, he's standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus who is dead and he, it says he was moved with deep compassion and deep, a deep feeling stirred up in us. And it's actually this idea of like a, a, an intense anger and sorrow. And I think that that is the birthright of every Christian, that we can look at the world around us and enjoy it and find joy in it and be at peace in, in it and yet have at times stirred up a deep anger and a deep sorrow. And that's what Advent's meant to grow in us. And those who long for the coming of Jesus, I think, can read the news and can see injustice, systemic, large-scale, oppressive injustice, ancient, historic ways that we have oppressed people and can groan, come, Lord Jesus, come make it right. We don't seem to be able to find our way through this. You can. And when I see people like in public who I don't even know who are obviously in debilitating pain and going through chronic suffering or severely disabled, I just I pray for the resurrection. One day the lame will leap and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the crippled will walk and the mute will sing and I long for that day. And Paul says all who long for that day, all who long for that day have their heart aligned in the right direction. They are wanting that. And so we long for that day. We long for it in our hearts. We long for it with our behavior. We long for it with our work. The other thing that we do in Advent is we get places ready. We prepare I don't know why I'm talking about Advent. It's a month out. I just am in, in the Advent mood. We get things ready. I have just started to work imaginatively in my life, this, this space in which I really do imagine menial things as being preparatory in some way. And I was pulling ivy on uh, Friday, English ivy. I have acres of it on my half an acre lot. And... Um, <laughs> I was pulling English ivy, and I got into a bunch of poison ivy, and it was great. It was just, it's been a great weekend. And, and yet I, I just think about, like, as I'm doing that, I'm getting the space ready. As I'm doing the dishes, as I'm reading bedtime stories, as I go to the doctor, as I get a checkup, I'm getting the space ready. I'm preparing. Everything matters. Everything matters. Every dollar matters. Every person you see at a highway overpass that you, if nothing else, roll down your window and look in the eye and say hello to. Everything matters. We're getting the world ready. We're getting the space ready. And Paul says, for all who long for that coming, all who long for the coming of Caesar, who will come and make all things new, we have that hope before us. It gives hope to our life. It gives meaning to our life. It lays us down in the story that you and I live in. God help us to live in that story. Let's stand up together. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.